welcome to Media Matchup. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Gigi. We're undergraduate communication studies scholars looking to explore various comparisons within popular film and television. Throughout our undergraduate studies, we've taken a special interest in understanding how film and television both reflect and perpetuate oppressive norms and values in society to draw out meaning that might not be immediately apparent and to challenge the status quo. Yeah, basically, media criticism isn't tied down to one thing and is relatively new in communication studies. Therefore, we want to take you on our journey navigating this uncharted territory. In today's episode, we will compare and contrast Spike Lee's 1989 Do the Right Thing and Ryan Coogler's 2013 Fruitvale Station. The general topics that we'll be looking at are racial tensions, police brutality, and the Black American experience. We cannot speak on the Black American experience firsthand being two white women, but we believe it's still important to have this dialogue and strive to have meaningful conversation despite some fear or hesitation about misspeaking. We've chosen these films because they similarly portray a day in the life of an average Black man, but differ in time period. Do the Right Thing takes place in the late 1980s, while Fruitvale Station takes place during Obama's presidency in what scholars mark as the beginning of the post-racial era. Do the Right Thing explores real issues through a fictional set of characters and situations, whereas Fruitvale Station is based upon the true events of Oscar Grant's tragic murder at the hands of the San Francisco police. Fruitvale Station is a critically acclaimed independent film with 38 wins and 55 nominations. Do the Right Thing had more mainstream praise and was nominated for two Oscars and had another 20 wins and 15 nominations. Rotten Tomatoes gave Do the Right Thing a 93% rating and Fruitvale Station a 94%. So overall, both films were highly praised and clearly worthy of study. So now I think it would be lovely for us to both share some general thoughts, feelings, reviews on each movie. So we'll start with Do the Right Thing. Phoebe, I'm curious to know your thoughts in terms of the viewing experience, your enjoyment of the movie, anything you'd like to share. Okay, yeah. Well, Do the Right Thing, I remember I the first time I saw it, I saw it in high school. And honestly, it was brilliant. It was immediate I was immediately like the the colors, the aesthetics, the vibrancy to it. I was immediately like drawn in. I was sweating. I felt like I was in the hottest day in Bed-Stuy. Right. Um it was also one of the first films of Spike Lee's that I uh, of Spike Lee's that I'd seen. Um so it was really heavy. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I similarly um, was taken by the vibrancy yeah. and, and just the the colorful story as well as the aesthetics, as you'd mentioned. Um, I think going into it, knowing that it was 80s, set in the 80s, made in the 80s, right, I was yeah, a little yeah. bit worried that I was going to have to look past the 80s <laughs> yeah. of it all in order to like enjoy the movie for what it is mm-hmm. but I genuinely feel like that adds to the experience totally, totally. and and you feel so welcomed into this environment this ecosystem of Bed-Stuy in the late 80s yeah. um so I really enjoyed this movie I thought that the flow of it was great I thought that you know we had so many interesting characters that we got yeah. to watch interact, um, which I really appreciated getting getting to understand and know such a wide variety of characters in this story. Um, so next we will speak briefly on Fruitvale Station. Personally, yeah, what were your thoughts? I 
enjoyed this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say I enjoyed Do the Right Thing more. Um, you know, Fair. and that's just a personal preference just, thing. Yeah. Um, I think that it being an indie film, it, it kind of came through for me in the viewing experience. And that's yeah. not necessarily a good or bad thing, but yeah. it's just, you know, I, I felt like I was watching a low budget film yeah I and mean, it's definitely different I don't I really don't mean <laughs> I don't mean nothing but love and respect for Fruitvale Station it's a fantastic film no, from yeah. a cinematic standpoint and in terms of storytelling and it's such an important story to tell um but again I I think that my enjoyment was yeah. stronger and do the right thing oh yeah and then when you and when you look at the two i mean they're drastically different in yes. aesthetics as well yes like fruitville station doesn't have that vibrant red wall in like every other scene right but um yeah fruitville station i i did enjoy i don't know i think maybe i liked the california aspect of it yeah it was a little bit i can agree with that home. i can agree with that yeah, yeah. um but different than do the right thing different for and sure. i also i also did find it a little bit um more powerful not more powerful that might be um but for lack of a better phrase um because it was based on a true story yes i can agree with that for yeah. sure um so before we jump into further analysis we wanted to give a brief overview of background information on the worlds that each movie respectively welcomes us into so the opening credits of do the right thing showcase rosie perez's dance moves to mm -hmm. fight the power this is a song that we see time and time again in the movie and of course is is meant to sim symbolize something much more meaningful but we won't get too deep into that right now i do just remember when watching it um feeling like it was such a powerful sequence and that the opening credits with with you know accompanied by so much is something that we've sort of lost I think yeah. in more recent films um and so I could appreciate that and I feel like Rosie Perez just really gives it her all and it, it immediately sets kind of I don't want to go as far as to say an aggressive tone but like we're we're you can tell that we're immediately dealing with something. You're diving right in. You're diving right in, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Do the Right Thing opens on an extremely hot day in Bed-Stuy, New York. Um, this immediately indicates to the audience that this is no ordinary day. Although it appears to be relatively mundane, we're clued into the idea that something is mounting given this repeated mention of the hottest day. Yeah, something's heating up. <laughs> Um, similarly, with Fruitvale Station, the beginning welcomes us into a classic New Year's resolution conversation talking about uh, what Oscar and his girlfriend want for the new year. And Oscar's girlfriend mentions cutting out carbs because of Oprah and then discusses the importance of the icon of Oprah. So immediately you're already talking about like Black pride, Black identity, and then right uh, off the bat, there is an importance surrounding this day. There's a buildup to a new year, a new start. Um, and immediately after that, the audience is shown a shaky video of a gunshot firing off. Um, and that actually, that footage is actually from the real event of Oscar Grant's murder at the BART station. Right. And so let's talk about this clip at the beginning yeah. first. Um, I think one thing that stood out to me about this strategic placement of this clip mm -hmm. is that 
you know, we can assume, at least as viewers who are not familiar with the true event, um, we can assume that this has to do with our main character. And although we don't know what exactly has transpired or mm -hmm. what has led up to this event, like the fact that we are given that knowledge from the outset, it then sort of informs how you view the rest of the film. And so although, again, we're going through the motions of a relatively normal day in the mm -hmm. life, yeah. we can feel that something is mounting. We can feel that something is building up to this climax moment. Yeah, exactly. So it flashes back to 24 hours before, but we know that something relating to this footage is bound to happen. Right. Um, and I think it is important for us to discuss also the power of the cell phone. Yes. And how this plays a role in, um, you know, citizen journalism mm -hmm. and that the people having some, some ability to document these instances and then share them becomes very powerful. Yeah. With this footage being real, suddenly... Um, this movie, it's based on a true story, but then you see this real footage and you're like, okay, this, this all seems very real to me because it is. Right. Um, and we'll touch on the importance of cell phones, I think later too. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so this all hints at the main character's ultimate fate from the beginning, adding new meaning to the typical daily events that follow as the story unfolds. So with that in mind, each encounter that Oscar has throughout the day means more to the audience, whether it be microaggressions or flashbacks to his time in prison or meaningful family get togethers. So now we're gonna kind of compare and contrast Do the Right Thing and Fruitvale Station. And I think first we should talk about um, time period. Um, Do the Right Thing takes place in 1989 and Fruitvale Station happens, you know, 20 some odd years years later in 2013. Um, so there's clear um, time period differences. Yes. Um, Do the Right Thing takes place in New York in the late 1980s, early 1990s. This is associated with Ronald Reagan's presidency, um, which is often associated with the rise of the crack epidemic and mass incarceration rates um, getting higher in definitely disproportionately in black communities. Right. Um, whereas in the 2010s during Obama's presidency, which as we previously mentioned, is what marks the post-racial era as scholars refer to it. Um, and essentially my understanding of this idea yeah. um, is that people were under the belief that because we had a black president that we could put the issue of racism behind us and that we had somehow resolved all of all those of the, issues yes. um and you know i will just say i remember like learning about this theory and and genuinely being so perplexed <laughs> that that people could feel that way or 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 see that and the more that you know we view these films and, and think deeply about this topic, the more that it becomes clear to me that there are people that are under that assumption yeah. or did feel that way at the time. Um, and so I think that the biggest takeaway that we have from this comparison of the 1980s, as you said, associated with the Reagan presidency, which we have racism looking something like 
mass incarceration rates going through the roof, the crack epidemic, whether it be other um, legislative practices like stop and frisk. Yeah. Um, and we're then s- we're seeing more violence and policing depicted in the media in black communities in the 1980s. Right. Um, it's definitely more like in your face. Right. And I think also if we are flashing back 20 years before that mm-hmm. we're in the 1960s which yeah. is prime civil rights movement time and so again like of course a lot of progress had been made at the time but again i think um it's important to keep in mind that although it's easy to think mm-hmm. that racism may have become better mm-hmm. it's really just that it has shape-shifted into something that looks different, different. yeah exactly um and so again, thinking about the 1980s as opposed to 20 years into the future, around the 2010s, although we might have um, renamed some things mm-hmm. or shifted things yeah, shifted things around a little, it's important that we keep in mind that a lot of these um, racist tendencies are still at play on the individual level, on the institutional level, from, you know, the government, whatever it might be, like, I think part of the dangerous aspect of the post-racial era is that white people can feel um, as if, oh, we've solved it. Oh, we've dealt with it. And this is no longer an issue that we need to be worried about. Yeah. Which is not the case. case. This is a multi-generational issue and it's not just going to go away when suddenly we have our first black president. Right. Um, And I think when we look at both these movies, I mean, as we've said before, they cover very similar topics and very similar depictions. So what the what viewers can see if they've seen both Do the Right Thing and Fruitvale Station is that even though there's almost a 30 year gap between these movies, they're talking about the same thing. Right. And even that thinking even further into the future, you know, in 2020 these are stories that we're still seeing and i think that it just goes to show that these instances continue to happen Mm -hmm. um and that we cannot come at this from the perspective of oh things are getting better because as we've already mentioned a lot of this just looks a little different yeah and in some ways is um, a little more difficult to spot. Yeah. It's um, almost more dangerous in that right, regard. Right. Yeah. So just to add on to this topic of the general time period that each of these films take place in, um, looking to the 1980s and black culture of the time, um, you know, funny enough, we're seeing a lot of these trends come back back. around yeah and there's a resurgence of these bright colors and specifically i think there was a bucket hat yeah bucket hats like uh sneakers and baggy pants baggy pants um and you're seeing a lot of these trends kind of like resurge um and i don't know if it's because of like the new age with tiktok um but you're seeing a lot of these trends resurge in like white communities right and it seems as though there's either like a lack of awareness that's kind of verging on appropriation of black culture and black fashion. Right. Definitely. I think that as you're saying, these kids on TikTok <laughs> um, just completely lack awareness about the origin of these trends, um, which is, I would 
go as far as to say like sort of damaging. Yeah. Because I think without that acknowledgement of, of sort of giving credit where credit is due. Exactly. Um, I think that that is a potentially dangerous habit. Yeah, I think as well. And I think it's interesting to look back on a film, you know, in the 1980s and see something that's happening right now and see that, you know, maybe a trend that's occurring right now could originate back from the 80s or farther beyond that. Right. And I think we also do see some of the remnants of, the sort of clothing choices and whatever style choices, hip hop rap emerging in the 1980s and in black communities, then coming back around to Fruitvale Station, we're seeing some of the same, you know, baggy clothing or whatever, but definitely more muted colors. Definitely, Definitely, you know. Definitely not the 80s vibrancy. No, (laughs) certainly not. Yeah. So next, um, we will cover representations of white and black characters' relationships in both of these films. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, it we will also touch on other um, interactions between various races, not yes. not limited to black and white encounters. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway for me from Do the Right Thing is that Spike Lee wants to communicate the complexity of these issues yeah. and of the various um, identities at play. Um, and I think that with the exception of our character Pino um who is sort of one-dimensionally racist most other characters might display racist tendencies or um prejudice tendencies stereotype each other whatever it might be um but that it it isn't as simple as the good guys and the bad guys or as black and white as you know not to use that phrasing in a confusing way but um just that there is a lot more nuance to these issues than I think is sometimes given airtime. Yeah, and you see, and do the right thing, you see relationships between, um, you know, black people of color versus non-black people of color. And um, you kind of see the complexities between like the Puerto Ricans and the black people. And then you have the Asian couple that owns the liquor store Mm -hmm. and the black people and kind of the like tensions between those communities as well. And um, I think it's kind of interesting to see how those relationships play out as well as um, how it plays out with the Italian-American family. Definitely. Um, So if we're thinking of racism as a system of advantage that white people are benefiting from, um, people of color have this space to still be um, prejudiced towards each other or stereotype each other and and do the right thing. We definitely see that. between, for example, DeMayer when he is in the Asian couple's um, grocery store. He is very clearly assuming things about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, we have the three Black guys who are just hanging out during the film who are speaking about how, you know, they feel resentment towards this Asian couple because they have found some level of success, whether that be through owning a business or having a job or whatever. um, And that they have lived in this community their whole lives and have yet to see any success or growth or progress for themselves in any kind of monetary way. Um, 
And so I think that there are a lot of these instances, especially in Do the Right Thing, where we're seeing interactions amongst various racial identities that, again, are far more complex than they're often given credit for. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So similarly in both films, um, I think it's interesting that both main characters have Latina girlfriends and um, both of the girlfriends have kind of, they have the responsibility put on them to take care of um, Oscar's child and Mookie's child in both movies. Um, And kind of the burden of an income is more on the male and the girlfriends are kind of um, make that known in the movie. Right. And so I think an important topic for us to discuss here is the importance of having a job and sort of how that functions in both films that for each of our main characters, having a job is like vital to, I don't want to go as far as to say who they are as a person. I would say having an identity though. Yeah. Having, having an identity, having a like sense of self, a sense of worth um, and feeling like they have something to contribute to the world. And yeah. and that even kind of goes back to what I had said about the three guys who feel resentment towards the Asian couple yeah. that because they have never been able to really keep a job or make any sort of um, like gains in the community from a professional career standpoint, um, they feel a bit like at a loss. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't know really what to do with themselves or, or how to go about life um, yeah. without that like sense of purpose, For sure. which I, I, I see as kind of problematic. I see it as problematic as well, because especially in Do the Right Thing, there is this like theme, uh, like Mookie is just trying to get paid. He's just trying to get paid all day. Like he has this job, he's trying to keep his job. He's just trying to get paid. And so there's this like theme that like keeping this job, having a job is kind of like, the most it's like the pinnacle of success and um even smiley comes to the pizzeria and it's kind of like bugging um pino and pino's trying to pino like kicks him out and says like why don't you go away why don't you get a job and there's this like insult that like if you don't have a job you're worth nothing um and in quite all honesty like you're invisible to me because i have a job and i'm better than you right um so there's this kind of like social hierarchy. Totally. And I also think um, you see this sense of entitlement from Pino mm-hmm. of like, this is my family's pizzeria. And this is I, like, I have a right as an heir to this, you know, pizza empire. Um, and, and that like, I am better than you mm-hmm. other people because I have a job. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of purpose. I have something to inherit. Mm-hmm. I have property, all of these things. Um, and this also comes up again in a conversation between um, Ahmad and Demayer in Do mm-hmm. the Right Thing, mm-hmm. where Ahmad, who is a part of the like, just kind of young group that hangs around, like yeah. they function basically as just like this cool friend group in the community. Yeah. Um, and Ahmad and Demayer are kind of going back and forth. And Ahmad is saying, Demayer, like, if I were you, I would have gotten a job. I would have gotten my stuff together. Um, and I would have taken things, matters into my own hands and figured it out. Um, which is sort of operating on the assumption that Demayer wasn't already 
trying to do, to do that, that. Yeah. and that he wasn't he wasn't working that there weren't a bunch of factors already working against him and I think that this to me indicates both that like as a young person Ahmad feels more of a sense of agency in his life as opposed to Demeyer who feels so beaten down by the the hand that he's been dealt to a certain extent that like yeah. you see Ahmad dismiss whatever issues Demeyer has experienced or whatever hardship he's come across that he should have it to me it feels kind of like oh pick yourself up by your bootstraps which is messaging we see a lot from white people onto people of color For and sure. this idea of the american dream coming into play yeah. and that like you that everyone has, has equal opportunity to succeed which is just clearly not the case yeah it's not taking into account all of like you said the obstacles that are already put into play when you're a black person or person of color in this country that the American dream is just not that attainable right when you're looking at it from a more when, from a perspective maybe like DeMayer is trying to suggest um and then also in Fruitvale Station you see Oscar doesn't have a job and hasn't for like a few weeks I believe and he feels at a major loss because he doesn't have a steady income coming in and without a job, basically he doesn't really, he can't like figure out his place in society. Mm -hmm. And so you see this like same kind of idea coming into play that Oscar is someone that um, has been to prison um, is really just trying to make a means in his community, but there are so many other factors that are working against him. Right. And also that there is this paradox of, Oscar's struggling to get a job because he's been to prison mm -hmm. and that in order to make a living he needs a job yeah. and that if he doesn't want to go back to prison he cannot continue selling drugs which is how he got into prison and so it's just this cycle um, that a lot of black males experience and still to this day experience this issue of not being able to um you know, make, make any progress yeah. or, or set up any kind of, um, like career or for sure, or monetary mm -hmm. success, as we've been saying, which, which gives a sort of sense of self. And it's just really unfortunate. And I don't mean to say that in a way of like, Oh, I pity that situation, but it just is, it it's, I could see how that's so discouraging for sure. I mean, it's, a, and it's an entire system working against, against you. And right. I mean, yeah, what other way to put it than like, yeah. So I think next we can talk about the microaggressions that we mm -hmm. see in both movies. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, immediately when I hear the word microaggression, I'm thinking things that may appear harmless or might fly under the radar but truly do have um some sort of oppressive function or come from a place of of trying to oppress people um or it's a product of our norms and values yes. that um, perpetuate these oppressive norms yeah there one particular moment that sticks out to me and do the right thing is 
um, there's kind of like a yuppie that moves into the neighborhood of Bed-Stuy um, and scuffs Buggin' Out's Air Jordan shoes. Um, and Buggin' Out kind of gets upset and um, the white man makes it clear that he has moved into the neighborhood, which also kind of plays into the fact that like this neighborhood, you know, I mean, it's ironic now. You look at Bed-Stuy, and Bed-Stuy is one of the most gentrified neighborhoods in in New York, and it's because of people like this character kind of moving in and making it their own. Um, but Bugging Out kind of gets upset, and the white man just says, well, it's a free country, and that is so deliberately put into that scene because, and then Bugging Out kind of is like, gets gets more upset because when the man says that it's just so clear that he's thinking from a perspective of a white guy living in america and saying that well it's a free country from my point of view so i can do whatever i want i can move into your neighborhood i can scuff your shoes and there's really like no consequences for me right and i think another thing at play here with microaggressions or at least my understanding Mm -hmm. is that part of their power comes from the like succession of Mm -hmm. microaggressions. And if I'm not mistaken, the scuffing of the shoe follows bugging out requesting that there be black representation on the wall in the pizzeria. And so it's like another prime example of, okay, it's Sal's pizzeria. Like he reasonably can choose who's on the wall, but at the same time, see looking up and seeing zero black representation when it is a pizzeria that is like dominantly dominantly black clientele right exactly (laughs) like the majority of the patrons are people of the black community it just feels it feels upsetting to to not see people that look like you exactly and so it's something like that which again he might seemingly have a an explosive reaction to mm-hmm. or like you know the situation escalates quickly um where they're both quite worked up mm-hmm. but especially when you consider on a daily basis how many of these microaggressions could reasonably occur it's like it's the it's the final straw you know the frustration is just mounting further and further to the point where you you just you've had enough (laughs) yeah and we also see this kind of occur throughout the movie periodically and it's kind of working to be this buildup of racial tensions that ultimately leads to the climax of the film right so throughout this movie you see things like happen like this and then yeah like like you said it just it becomes like the straw that broke the camel's back right Um, So along the same line, we have a conversation between Mookie and Pino um, about various Black celebrities sort of in the aftermath of this conversation between Buggin' Out and Sal, yes? Yes, yes. Um, And so, you know, Mookie is mentioning or or is asking Pino who his favorite um, NBA players are, who his favorite actors, singers, Mm -hmm. and he rattles off Magic Johnson, Eddie Murphy, Prince, Mm -hmm. all, you know, black icons of the time. Um, And Pino tries to say that they are more than black, um, which is of course, like, a microaggression but 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 more than that it it edges on being an aggression aggression yeah Yeah. and I think here um you could even I mean I would argue that you still see this today you see this kind of like 
white exploitation and white worship of black talent and black um, culture. But, um, but then, but then there's this like standoffish attitude like Pino has that's like, well, they're, they're more than that because they're larger than life. They're legends. They're, you know, whatever. And that, that somehow their fame allows them to transcend their black identity. identity. Yes, exactly. Mookie then suggests to Pino if he wishes he was black on the inside and Pino kind of like scoffs and that's kind of like the ultimate attitude is that white people kind of you know worship um worship people like Magic Johnson and these like great athletes and great singers and you know but at the end of the day um if it were to come down to it like they don't like they don't want like I don't know how to say it though. Well, I Do you know I also at? feel like there's this element that like if you are a black person who has extraordinary talent, you are yeah. a value yeah. to me. Yeah. If you are a regular black person, then you're you are of no value to yeah. me. And that to me, that's what the insinuation is. Yeah. yeah. And that they're more than black is implying that a typical black person it means nothing to Pino and that these black individuals with extraordinary talent mean something more to than him. that. Yes. And then there's also the idea that I think we should acknowledge that if you're black and you want to make it in this world, you have to be three, four times more talented than the white guy or white woman next to you. Right. So it's also something that like, if if you're trying to make it in this world as a black person, you have to, you literally have to strive to be like the magic Johnson of basketball, because if you're not, then t- to a white person, you're just, you're just black. And, right. and that's the attitude kind of that Pino is like gets. Right. And I think this again goes back to the importance of representation and that mm-hmm. like, if young black people don't see themselves in other roles, they don't feel welcomed into that being a possibility for their life path you know like you don't see wall street finance bros (laughs) like i mean i'm sure that there are some people of color who (laughs) are wall street finance bros but you you get what i'm saying the stereotype is that it's all white guys and so you know i'm even i can use my own um like marginalized identity as a female to be like i don't feel welcomed into that space because there is not very much representation there and of course I don't mean to make that comparison to equate it in any way but but I'm just using that as an example to express that you know when you don't see yourself represented in a community then how are you really supposed to get your foot in the door right exactly whether that be through networking or connections or like even just Just believing that you have can do it exactly exactly and so the idea that like young black people either have the option of trying to strive to be magic Magic johnson Johnson. (laughs) or do what you're seeing the people of your community doing which is at least the way it's portrayed and do the right thing is limited yeah so in fruitvale station we see microaggressions play out um and i would say different ways that speak to the time that it took place in so a particular one that uh, stood out to me was um oscar returns to the supermarket that he had his job at and is going there with the mission to like try and get it back and when he is there he kind of 
um, gets interrupted by this white woman, Katie, who is talking to the butcher and is trying to prepare a southern fish fry dish for dinner that night and so she she's kind of flustered she has all these questions she doesn't know what to do and within that interaction you see certain microaggressions play out so in the beginning um katie body position wise is kind of stand not kind of is standoffish towards oscar suggesting that she's kind of uncomfortable by oscar's presence um and that she's a white woman and she sees a black man and she's maybe like threatened by right. his Right, and I think it's important to mention that in this interaction, she is she is speaking with the black butcher yes. and is having no problem it's because safe. these like Feels roles are clearly defined and she mm-hmm. knows, you know, what the, what the interaction is meant to look exactly. like. And it's this uncertain interaction with yes. an unknown black male to her right that is off-putting to her yeah and then once the butcher makes clear that oscar has actually worked at the supermarket actually has experience then suddenly you see katie kind of like open up to oscar and you see her like be more open to the fact that she can have this conversation with him about um the fish dish right and i'd also like to say just before moving on um i think it's interesting that um, Katie and Oscar are kind of put together in this situation and Oscar has this I don't want to say that Katie's issue isn't real but Oscar has this very real issue of going to the supermarket because he lost his job and he wants his job back and is stressed about that and then Katie is put next to him and is going to the supermarket and she's flustered about making dinner that night and I think it's interesting that the director decided to kind of put the characters kind of next to each other in that scene, kind of showing the like dichotomy of their life problems in that moment of time. Right. And I feel like, especially in the context of New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel Katie's stress, you know, <laughs> yeah. of trying to put together a dish for the holiday. <laughs> but as you're saying, like, it really puts things into perspective when we see Oscar's character struggling for you know his livelihood livelihood exactly it's it it really just as you're saying puts things into perspective of these instances of stress that like katie's situation becomes um it pales in comparison yeah yeah um and then And then Katie explains to Oscar that she's trying to make this Southern fish fry dish and kind of gives Oscar the lowdown and Oscar kind of just very clearly asks um, if her friend that she's making it for is black and Oscar seems pretty comfortable talking about it and Katie immediately kind of I don't know, quarrels is that Um, she's uncomfortable by the idea of talking about race. And this kind of just kind of speaks to the time of this post-racial era that white people are kind of, it's like the elephant in the room. Like they're uncomfortable to address racial consciousness when in fact race is something that still exists. And then in talking about race is something that should still happen, but white people are very uncomfortable by that, by that idea. Definitely. Um, and I feel like, again, putting us back in the context of this post-racial era during Obama's presidency. Mm -hmm. I feel like there was this tendency in white people to want to ignore race or to be quote unquote colorblind Mm -hmm. as like a solution to this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like, again, um, this this is an instance where Katie is wanting to downplay 
yeah. race as a factor. I think she responds to Oscar. She says something like, oh no, it's, it's, it's not like this person that I'm making for isn't black. And then she kind of responds to herself by saying like, but I do have a lot of black friends, which often is like, I feel like a white person's response to being like, well, I have a black it's a, friend. It's, it's a defense mechanism yeah. to be like, I'm not racist. Yes, because I have this like black friend and it, yeah, it is a defense mechanism. Right. But I think that that does just go to show that, you know, racism looked quite different in the past where mm -hmm. having a black friend or, you know, being in an interracial couple or whatever was not nearly as common yeah. as it currently is. And yet like, because racism is an issue that occurs on so many different levels, and again, if we're thinking of it as this system of advantage, like white people are inherently benefiting from this system of advantage. Mm -hmm. And by trying to ignore that, they're doing more harm than good. Um, something that also I think comes up in um, Fruitvale Station and in Do the Right Thing is um, the sense of pride surrounding black identity. And you see that in a few scenes in Fruitvale Station that I can talk about. Um, there's this one scene where Oscar goes to his family get together and um, he's talking with like his uncles and relatives and they're watching a football game and the Steelers are playing. And one of his relatives is like, I'm definitely rooting for the Steelers. They have black players, a black coach and the coach is even married to a black wife. And I think it's important to acknowledge that Ryan Coogler like, like deliberately places these scenes um, that revolve around like a sense of pride with black culture and seeing like black success because often in media sometimes we don't really see that at all we don't mm -hmm. get that realistic picture right um, and I feel like maybe that's maybe that does contribute to why white people feel I don't want to say uncomfortable but like are a little confused by like black success black excellence black pride um and yet it is a very real thing that we just as white people sometimes don't get a good look at mm -hmm. or yeah. firsthand experience with exactly yeah and also if we want to think it, like also i think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of white people's experience about um black people in america is through media like right. that's some of their firsthand experience right so when we think about it in that regard um what white people are watching is really important for their perception of black people in america right and i think that is what makes these films so important mm -hmm. and and seeing more and more of these films being made and more and more black stories being told yeah. um so that there is a greater awareness of these issues for especially those who do not have any kind of firsthand access to what it's like to be black in america not even that white people have any firsthand experience with that period but that you can at least um learn See on it, some level yeah. and especially because um it is not necessarily the job of black people to teach yeah but these instances of black stories being told through film or through art or through television whatever it might be is i think a really accessible way for white people to learn about the about the black experience yeah i agree i agree in a way that isn't burdensome mm -hmm. to the black community but rather is celebrating the work of the black community yeah and 
that's why it's so important, you know, for there to be representation in Hollywood, like black directors, black mm-hmm. actors, like we talked about earlier in the movies, uh, like in these movies that we're talking about, like um, with these characters, like not seeing black people succeed, then how are they supposed to feel successful in another, in like a community that might seem far away? It goes in real life. It's the same way. Like right. if black people aren't seeing um black people succeed in Hollywood then how are they supposed to right feel as though they're included in that community right and that like Spike Lee Ryan Coogler among many others are paving the way for Mm -hmm. more young black artists to have space in Hollywood and and to create yeah um so shifting gears a little bit back to do the right thing and one of sort of the overarching themes of the film Mm -hmm. um is this sort of back and forth between the ideology of Martin Luther King Jr. versus Malcolm X. And this is something that we see, um, you know, repeatedly thanks to the presence of our character Smiley, who is always carrying around a photo of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. and Malcolm X, as well as we also have at the end of the film, um, two quotations from each of those people. And I think that that dynamic between these two like titans of the civil rights movement um sort of vibrates through a lot of the messaging in general for sure um and i think that (sighs) something that comes to mind for me is that because martin luther king jr is praised so highly in our school systems white people um, become very comfortable with his approach to combating racism yeah. um, and thinking that like peaceful spreading love is the way to go about combating this issue. And I'm not here to say that that's not, you know, a good approach to the, to the whole issue, but I feel like um, the way that we are taught about these things leaves little room for white people to understand the approach of Malcolm X for sure and a more aggressive or forceful approach yeah and I would even say that Martin Luther King Jr.'s approach is definitely whitewashed in the way that we learned that Martin Luther King Jr. was kind of um just like all about peace and even that's not true but we because of how we're taught in school kind of associate the two like the two with each other and then kind of it kind of undermines Malcolm X's philosophy right um and I think that as I said we see these this dynamic kind of play out in a number of situations in do the right thing mm-hmm. one specifically being the altercation between bugging out and Sal about having a lack of representation on the wall like in my mind bugging out demanding more black representation is embodying this Malcolm X energy of wanting to take matters into your own hands or demand what's yours and and not feel um, any hesitation in doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Sal, a character who, like I like I we've sort of previously mentioned, is not someone that we see as blatantly racist. It's no. not that he has any like, malice towards black people with uh, I'm I hesitate to say that <laughs> but I just mean like for the majority of the film he's not he doesn't like have it out for black people um but he definitely is trying to 
operate under, oh, we can all get along. Yeah, like he's, he's kind of trying to gatekeep. He's trying say. to gatekeep and he he obviously benefits from things as they are. Yeah. And he doesn't want to see change. He doesn't want to see change. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, this kind of goes back to more of the whitewashed Martin Luther King Jr thinking of we can all get along like Mm -hmm. peace and love you know I don't hate you black people (laughs) but um it's it's apparent that again he benefits from the system and does not want to see black people take what's his or change change what's his yeah um And then, of course, there are other instances, even as I had said before in this exchange between Ahmad and Demayer, that Ahmad sort of wanting to take things into his own hands embodies this Malcolm X thinking, whereas Demayer feeling like he can be optimistic and empowered um, by being nice to everyone Mm -hmm. is more of that Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr. energy. Yeah. So in both films, we see this reoccurring theme of um black masculinity and in fruitvale station ryan coogler portrays oscar grant as more than just um a victim of police brutality but um like a human an individual with a story and i think often in media black males are portrayed as kind of um only violent or only aggressive or absent and in Fruitvale Station, we see Oscar Grant as someone who, yes, had a very complex past and spent time in prison and um, had a past with drugs, but also is a father, is a boyfriend, has family, is a loving and caring individual. So in this regard, his character is a lot more complex than what we're often seeing in And also I think the biggest stories. thing is, is capable of change. Yes. You know, the fact that even we see him dump out the bag of weed that he was supposed to make money on mm-hmm. and, and the fact that that's coupled with this flashback to prison yeah. is a clear indication of him reflecting on previous experience yes thinking about what he sees for himself going forward and recognizing what he can do in the present to make positive change in his life um and i think that as you're saying we sometimes get this very flat or like one-dimensional um portrayal of black masculinity as either absent or violent or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. in um in film and television yeah um also just thinking about it now because this, these movies are all rushing back to me. Um, Radio Rahim um, introduces his two rings, uh, the love and hate ring, which um, also kind of perfectly aligns with the idea of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, because we have this monologue with Radio Rahim where he's explaining what the love ring is about and what the hate ring is about. And I think that kind of is like, is very symbolic to this idea of this Martin Luther King Jr. philosophy versus Malcolm X. Totally. All right, so finally, we will be discussing the portrayals of racial violence towards Black men in America, um, and specifically police brutality in both films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, th- for both, this is the climax of the film. This is, like, the main event and, and what the story it has been building up to yeah. the entire time. 
Um, so in Do the Right Thing, when we're looking at the various encounters that the community has with the police, we sort of observed that with each encounter, the police become increasingly more violent towards mm -hmm. the Black people involved. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, the first encounter that we have with the police or mm -hmm. the first like major encounter that we have with the police yeah. in Do the Right Thing um, is when the people are using the fire hydrant to spray water everywhere because it's obviously a super hot, day. super hot day. And then there's this white man who drives past in his convertible car is all angry and hostile about not getting his car wet. Yeah. And then they spray him with the water the police are then very like apathetic and uninterested in pursuing any action towards any, yeah. either party involved, yeah. not really favoring one or the other. They just seem sort of useless in yeah. this situation. Um, but then we again later see the presence of the police um, is definitely felt by the community. They There's this one stare down specifically. Yeah, with, the, with the three guys that sit um, in front of that red wall. Yes. And the police drive by and there's yeah like you said there's this like really dramatic stare down between right both parties right and they each say what a waste mm -hmm. um, and i mean i think even just the the eyes in general or that prolonged stare is inherently racist as if they need to be watched yes. or that like as if we can expect you know quote-unquote bad behavior or crime from these people mm -hmm. when in reality there is nothing that would suggest that they have any intention of committing any crimes in their own community in their own <laughs> community in that moment yeah period um and that's a that's a quintessential example of the police seeing some reason to keep an keep a watch on on the black individuals simply based on the fact that they're black yes and i think those three individuals um, that sit in front of the red wall yes. saying what a waste just is like speaks volumes as you said they're what are they patrolling like it, it really like what are what are you even looking at like you're I you're in my neighborhood watching me do what like I'm just right. hanging out right the climax of do the right thing um, is the final blowout between the police and the black people of the community, mm -hmm. um, which does result in Radia Rahim's murder. Um, and I think that this is a prime example as we've seen time and time again, whether it be in these fictional situations or in real life where black people die at the hands of the police, um, yeah. despite not having any real, Reason. real, like the, the black individuals are not posing any legitimate threat to the police's safety they mm -hmm. are unarmed and not resisting um and yet their lives are taken unjustly yeah and i actually read that spike lee based radio rahim's murder when the police chokehold him spike lee based it off of michael stewart's murder which happened back in the 80s um but that is known as like the michael stewart chokehold mm -hmm. um and one would regard that scene as kind of the hottest moment in that movie because here we are experiencing the hottest day in Bed-Stuy and then suddenly like things have kind of just really reached their peak and the police come, 
Radio Raheem dies. And then essentially in response to like really no reason at all to have killed Radio Raheem, um, Mookie throws a trash can through Sal's pizzeria window. And this kind of results in what you'd say is called a riot. And we can kind of touch on that later. Right. And I think another important thing to bring up here is that in this sort of aftermath mm-hmm. of Radio Rahim's murder, but before things have really gotten out of hand, DeMayer is saying, like, let's not do anything we'll regret like just trying to contain Mm -hmm. the frustration and trying to contain that um, behavior from everyone that's that's being motivated by this frustration and anger. Yeah. Um, And of course, ultimately the anger and frustration prevail. Like DeMayer's attempts at having everyone simmer down are completely- Useless. Useless. and again, this sort of maps onto the MLK Jr. versus Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, because we have DeMayer trying to keep things contained and peaceful, um, despite the people of the community having every reason yes. to feel angry and frustrated and at their wits end. Mm-hmm. And Fruitvale Station... Um, what we see in the beginning, obviously, is footage, very shaky footage of um, images of BART police, what's, what seems as though firing a gun at um, what we later find out is Oscar Grant. And what I think is interesting is throughout Fruitvale Station, we kind of see, we're kind of shown scenes where Oscar may potentially have like a run-in with the police like he is in the car with uh talking on the phone with his mom and his mom is like well are you driving hands-free essentially and Oscar isn't and that's something that he could very easily get pulled over for and then you know no no reason have a run-in with the police um and then Oscar comes across this pit bull at a gas station and the pit bull crosses the street and gets hit by a car and the car kind of just drives away and the pit bull is like left in the middle of the street essentially to die and that very much is like this eerie scene that kind of foreshadows um, I would say Oscar Grant's murder and that what Ryan Coogler is trying to depict is that like black men are kind of the like pit bull of America in that they're just kind of left on the street to die and disposed of mm-hmm. as though they don't matter. Um, and then the final scene, um, which is based on um, a true story. Oscar Grant was murdered in 2009 um, by the BART police. And what we see is that kind of a brawl was happened on the train and BART police get a hold of a group of um, Oscar Grant's friends and they're looking for like kind of like the last person that would have been involved in the fight as as though what they think Um, and one of the BART police goes onto the train to look for who it could be and you see this scene kind of from the angle of like a witness of them like looking and 
you can tell that he skips right over the white male that is also involved in the fight and kind of goes directly towards Michael B. Jordan or Oscar Grant because he looks like all the other people that they have already um, kind of put into custody. Um, Another thing that's sort of coming up for me now is the similarity between Sal and Katie, respectively, as these white, um, like, players in the situation who, in a lot of ways, initiate the issue Mm -hmm. and are not ultimately responsible for what happens Mm -hmm. at the hands of the police, but are responsible for initiating. Yeah. And I think, you know, I do think that it's it's different with Sal versus Katie because <laughs> Katie, it's a complete coincidence. Like sh- she would have had no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. I, and there's there's nothing that could have been done about that. And, you know, I'm not sure if that was for um, for the narrative yeah, or for yeah. the for the film um, or if something like that actually played out in the real events. Um, but of course, in the situation between Sal and Radio Rahim and Bugging Out and everything, you know, he does have a hand in some escalation and some mm-hmm. violence in the in the encounter. Um, so, of course, we can't necessarily directly compare Katie and Sal. But again, like they are both acting as these initiators yes. um, who... I don't want to say have to live with the guilt of the end result in each situation, but in some ways are responsible. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, kind of get, get away scot-free. Yes. And um, you would directly see the police's eyes just geared towards um, Michael B. Jordan. Um, And there's definitely like this sense of like, well, if he was actually just some other white guy that was involved in the fight, like he wouldn't have been picked out of the crowd to say. Mm -hmm. So ultimately what happens is um, the BART police kind of um, take Oscar Grant off of the um, train and um, the audience has then seen the footage of what comes next um and understands that um the bart police will um shoot oscar grant and it will lead to his death but so the big the big question um some would say after seeing do the right thing um is like did mookie do the right thing and Gigi and i have already talked about how that is kind of like a white reception of that movie um this idea if that Mookie kind of starting this riot um whether it was a right thing or not right um when in fact um there kind of isn't really a question if if Mookie did the right thing Mookie um Mookie's actions were justified in frustration and fed upness (laughs) (laughs) um of the event with Radio Rahim. And I think that this white, typically white reaction Mm -hmm. of wondering if he did the right thing, again, comes from the understanding of combating racism from 
let's all be friends yeah, yeah. and let's all be nice and peaceful with each other as opposed to we have deeply rooted institutionalized issues that are not being addressed and historically destruction of property has been a a sometimes productive way of garnering the attention of the right people in order to enact change properly yeah and ultimately if one is more concerned about the destruction of property over the murder of someone's life then really like what's the question you should be asking yourself right um like do we care more about sal's pizzeria window or do we care more about the fact that the police killed Radio Raheem? Right, and I, I am glad that you bring this up because I feel like some people's thought process goes to, well, they didn't have to do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's not a matter of, oh, they had to do that or they didn't have to do that. It's very clear when you make the comparison between the value of a person's life as yeah. opposed to the value of a storefront. Yeah. Like it's no question. It becomes no question whether or not Mookie did the right thing. 100%. And especially when also in the exchange between Mookie and Sal at the very end, mm-hmm. um, Mookie even says, you have insurance to cover this. Like it will be okay. <laughs> and of yeah. course I, I can understand Sal's frustration yeah. knowing that he, you know, put his, you know, energy and his work and his everything into this pizzeria for the majority of his life mm-hmm. um, and how upsetting that could be. But again, it when you put things into perspective, that is not nearly as important as someone's life being taken from them unnecessarily. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure there is an extra um, right before Mookie throws the trash can that says, they didn't have to do that. And so it's kind of, it's the same way. Like, well, Mookie didn't have to do that. Well, you could argue the same thing about the police. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and you see that similarly in people's reactions in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, you see similar reactions when riots started throughout um, the nation. You saw a lot of people being like, well, like, we don't need to be rioting. Like, kind of a similar reaction to maybe how people percepted perceived um do the right thing but then there's that very real life (laughs) um response with well george floyd didn't have to be taken at the hands of the police right um and then in fruitvale station um the the climax has a very different tone i would say to do the right things because even though do the right thing is you know grounded in very real life stories do the right thing i think had a lot of inspiration um from the howard beach incident um i read um but um fruitville station is a little bit is is more real because it's literally a true story um and the the end you it ends on like real life footage years later of oscar's daughter tatiana and um i couldn't help but think at the end that i had seen so much footage like that before um whether it was like george floyd's footage or it, it just it seemed like 
it seemed like I had seen the movie before in high school and obviously the movie was heavy then, but seeing it, you know, recently for the reasons of this podcast, um, after what's happened in 2020 with the BLM protests, um, the aftermath of seeing the, the real footage again of Oscar Grant, I just felt like I have seen similar footage before and this isn't something that's just made up for a movie. These are people's lives. And and I think to your point, watching it in high school, mm-hmm. when maybe you have not had any encounters with these real life events, yes. or like you were in some ways being sheltered from that information. 100%, when you yeah. watch the movie, you understand that it is real, mm-hmm. but you might not be able to truly apply that yeah. to... to your understanding of the world. And I think that then watching what occurred in 2020 and yeah. then viewing this film again gives it new meaning, at least in how you understand these situations and the reality of this situation. 100%. I mean, yeah, I bet you would feel the same way that I watched uh, the end and I could put Oscar Grant's name to it, or there was just so many other names that popped into my head where I felt like I had seen similar footage or I had heard similar stories um, and they kind of were like resurged by what had happened recently with the Black Lives Matter protests. Right. Another thing that I'd kind of like to rewind a bit and discuss is the end of Do the Right Thing. Again, where we see um, we see Mookie and Sal interact as Mm -hmm. well as just the like community carrying on the following day yeah to me I feel like the interaction between Mookie and Sal where they they sort of fall back into speaking with each other the way that they had the entire film um and that sort of stood out to me because I would think that with tensions running so high you know you'd think that there would be more emotion in that conversation and there of course of course were or was at moments um but I feel like part of it just returning to normal Mm -hmm. um both in that conversation and in how you know we see Samuel L. Jackson the radio guy Mm -hmm. like telling us more about the weather for that day and whatever things carrying on as usual um I feel like it just goes to show how much um these instances people just have to carry them with them on a daily basis and they're constantly being shoved down you know so that you can carry on with life as usual yeah and yet again they they are contributing to this um like accumulation of instances Mm -hmm. where frustration the infuriation the disappointment the discouragement the exasperation um that people are carrying with them day in and day out yeah and I think that white people have no understanding of that or like go about business as usual without recognizing that that's something that black people again going back to these these microaggressions are living whether it be microaggressions or these instances um you know of police brutality it's like they Black people are carrying this with them day in and day out. Yeah. Like, even if we're thinking again about the three Black guys who are behind or in front of the red wall, Mm -hmm. they haven't been able to 
really establish any kind of roots um, in terms of a career in this community. And so destruction isn't going to hurt them. Yeah. Does that make sense? They have have nothing to lose lose in this. Yeah. And yeah. And I think that like, obviously white people have a tendency to make it about themselves and be like the destruction of my property and whatever. Mm -hmm. But not only are are they not recognizing that it's a black person's life that has been taken, Mm -hmm. but also that black people have historically not been, um, allowed to own property or have not been given the opportunities to own property and so it's like think about that thing that you own and yes it's been destroyed to some extent but you still own it and you still have the opportunity for ownership yeah um so i would also like to just kind of circle back to the idea of like the power of the cell phone because i feel like that is really prevalent in Fruitvale Station because I would say that Oscar Grant's um, footage of his murder was probably maybe one of like the first as far as it being like taken on someone's like cell phone. Right. Um, And we've only seen that kind of escalate since then. And now we kind of all hold the power of knowledge and awareness of this thing happening around us and in back in june when blm um protests were really like taking um taking off we kind of i i think there was like kind of a a surge of people like finding power in the cell phone and Mm -hmm. power in social media Mm -hmm. and kind of not being not being able to kind of like turn a blind eye and ignore what's happening like right in their own hands. And I feel like maybe before, like years later, before, you know, we all had like a cell phone or whatever, um, one could say one could kind of ignore racism. But I think now and what Fruitville Station touches on is that you can't ignore this. You can't like not see it. It's happening. And if you're not doing anything about it, then whose side are you on really? And I think, I think there are probably are a good number of people that sort of fell into the category of like, they needed to see it to believe it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that the, the power of the cell phone allows for that seeing it to believe it. Yeah. Um, Cause I even think, you know, as we're saying in seeing these films, even though they are a great resource and these stories are so important to tell, Mm -hmm. especially when it's a true event or based on a true event. um, Sometimes it's a matter of things happening essentially right at your fingertips in order to, to understand the gravity of it. For sure. So I think a big takeaway from what I took when matching up, do the right thing with, Um, Fruitvale Station is that when one watches both these films um, you understand that really nothing has changed it's just that things are different and like you said earlier just racism has kind of shape-shifted right and I think that's probably the the like probably most important takeaway is that um 
30 years later after do the right thing do the right thing is still relevant but also someone else can make a movie that is extremely similar in topics right and I think it is easy to become discouraged Mm -hmm. um feeling like nothing has changed and that no progress has been made but I think especially along the lines of you know the power of the cell phone and and our ability to spread greater awareness Mm -hmm. on these topics is one aspect that we can feel some sense of progress with um and I think that that's what makes these films, these, um, you know, people reporting on these instances, people having these conversations so valuable. Um, and of course, as we touched on earlier, there's, as to white people, some hesitation to try and speak on these issues because mm-hmm. we will always be coming at it from the white perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think that the more that people can make an effort towards trying to understand having a genuine interest investment and curiosity in the black experience in a productive way um, and spreading that awareness um, can ultimately sort of chip away at those instances of racism on the individual level on the community level and on the institutional level I agree and yeah I think with the power of social media and the cell phone as we've talked about I think it's really important for white people to find agency in talking about these issues because black people can't do it on their own and they're probably tired of talking about it because as we've seen it's been happening for generations Mm -hmm. so it's important that you know we continue to have these conversations and continue to educate and push um, push learning about these topics more. And when possible, amplifying the voices of the Black community, which yeah. I think is to some extent what we've tried to do here yeah. by wanting to think deeply about um, these films and their stories and what it is that these Black directors, Black actors, Black people have to say about their experiences. Thanks for tuning in to Media Matchup, our very first episode. Yes. Down the line, we plan to cover shows such as Empire and Succession, Sex Education and Glee, and Sex in the City and Entourage. So we'll catch you next time.